Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you were going to do it, it, now is the time to do it. And we we were had done very, very well at Stanford, and there was no place else to go, really. You weren't going to leave Stanford to take another college job. So there's only one, one other thing to do, and that was the NBA. You know, in retrospect, it wasn't probably the right thing to do either for Chris Mullen or for myself. To listen to your message, press one. This is the Give Me a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. End of message. All right, a quick thanks to everyone who's been listening to the show. Really awesome to continue to get the feedback from from everyone. Love seeing you know the word spread on social media. Uh, this show continues to grow, and it doesn't happen without you guys. So uh, once again, a quick thank you for that. And before we get to today's guest, a reminder if you're a basketball fan, and today's show is certainly basketball theme, take a listen back to some of our previous uh, hoops guests that we've had on. A, a couple that come to mind for at least me right now off the top of my head, uh, Utah coach Lyra Koskoviak, Colorado, uh, Tad Boyle, he came on with us way back. Back in the day, Duke star Ala Abdelnabi, he was a guest with us. Uh, Corey Close, who's now the current coach at UCLA, their women's team, she actually came on with Steve Lavin, who used to be UCLA's coach, and they talked the, about the legacy of John Wooden. And today's guest actually received the John Wooden Coaching Lifetime Achievement Award, and that's Mike Montgomery, winning his coach in Stanford basketball history, 12 NCAA tournaments in 18 years on the farm, two seasons as the coach of the Warriors. He was also at Cal. Overall, 32 years as a college coach. 16 NCAA tournaments, a Final Four, about 700 wins, and he's a college basketball Hall of Famer. And I know I'm forgetting a couple of the other awards that he's received over that span. But, Coach, appreciate you stopping by with us and giving us some time. Yeah, my pleasure. Hope you got good questions to ask. Well, you know, it's funny because we were joking right before we, we started or before I hit that record button and you said, hey, you're getting a little bit older and, and maybe that memory. I, I was going to ask because I, I think of you as a basketball guy. My memories of you are on the on the sidelines with your teams. Do you remember your first job? And I'm not even talking about basketball. I just mean in life, your first actual job where you got a paycheck for something that might not even have had anything to do with hoops. Oh, gosh. I mean, I had so many jobs in college just to try to make ends meet, you know, back I, mean, I used to drive down to Huntington Beach on my scooter and uh, flip burgers for a buck fifty an hour uh, on Saturdays and Sundays. You know, when the beach beach was full, it was a great job. You know, you sit in there and cook burgers and stuff. And I mean, I had so many jobs in college; it's just hard to imagine. But uh, yeah, you had to you had to make ends meet. I had a scholarship at Long Beach State, uh, although it wasn't worth, worth very much. It was fifty bucks a semester, but tuition was forty seven. So I guess you you know you made ends meet. Wow. Is there, do you think you maybe have a little bit of a different appreciation of what you had to go through considering what some of the players were getting at maybe at your last stop at Cal? Oh, there's no question. I mean, you know, things change. I mean, there's an evolution of the way people look at things and the way life changes. I remember my dad laughing at Elvis Presley and laughing at the Beatles and, you know, and thinking there's just no way that this is going to stick. And of course, as a young kid, I'm looking at it thinking, Hey, this is pretty cool. And I think that's the same thing now. People have 
somewhat said, oh, he's old school, and I take that as a compliment. I, I look at the game, and I look at college basketball in particular as a privilege and uh, just a chance to play basketball and have a chance to compete. But that's sort of not the way it is right now. Uh, you know, you, you, things were different then, and they will be different for my kids as they move forward. But that's just uh, that's the way it is. Coach, one of the cool things about your career is you got to to say goodbye. And not every coach, you know, that I've had an opportunity to work with have had have had that luxury. I remember I actually was at your your press conference when you decided to retire from Cal. I remember interviewing you for for Pac-12 Network after you made that decision. I, you know, retirement, I think people think, hey, you kind of kick back and relax. And yet your schedule is is still pretty hectic here. You're still around the game. You're still calling games. You're still on committees. You're still traveling uh, around the West Coast and, and calling games for us here at Pac-12 Network. Do you do you miss being on the sidelines at all? Do you still have that itch? No, no, I, I really don't. I mean, I think there's a time for everybody. It's not to say that I couldn't still have done it. Uh, you know, we, we sort of had – we were in decent shape when I left Cal, and uh, we had good kids coming back, and we had some really good kids that were going to come in and join us. So uh, I just think that uh, it's sort of a young man's game. I think it takes a lot of energy. I, I am – doing stuff now, maybe a little more than I'd thought, uh, but you're not, it's not a 24-7 type of mindset where you're thinking about it every day. It's all you think about. It dominates you. Uh, when it's time to go, you know, go to games and be ready to, to call a game, it doesn't it take that a whole lot of energy, a little preparation, uh, whereas before, you know, it was, you know, you wouldn't sleep at night. If you lost a game, it'd probably take, it'd probably take me 48 hours to get over it. Uh, before I could push on to the next thing. So, no, I don't miss all of that. And like I say, there was a time where I said, okay, I, I've had a great run, and it's I've been very, very fortunate, so let's just let somebody else do it. Coach, do you, do you remember growing up, Did you was coaching something you thought about as a kid? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I came from a real athletic family. My dad had been a uh, you know, a really good athlete at UCLA. He was a four-year letterman in football, basketball, and three-year letterman in rugby. And uh, we used to just marvel at that. But as he would say, it wasn't like it is now in terms of UCLA being UCLA. It was the southern branch at that point in time. But my brothers were good athletes. We were all PE majors. We were grown up in athletic families. Just sort of what we knew. It's sort of what we wanted to do. And, of course, you are influenced by your parents and uh, we couldn't watch television uh, before 5 o'clock unless it was sports. So there's always that underlying aspect that sports were important. And, uh, you know, then at the end of the day, it's probably all I can do. I mean, that's the sad part of it. I guess if I'd have prepared myself differently, I could have done something else. But really, that's what I had in mind. I got very lucky to get into college early and never look back. Uh, that really wasn't what my intention was. But I did have the coaching butt for sure. When you were starting out, you know, Tad Boyle, he came on the show a couple of weeks back and, uh, you know, he sort of his path was was really unique because he started really late. It was kind of like late 20s for him before he got into college coaching and he sort of cited a lot of the mentors that he had had. Do you, he, he told me about some of those kind of like those jobs that he didn't necessarily, you know, people don't love. I mean, you're, you're on a staff and it's sometimes, you know, that grunt work. Do you remember those first few where you, you maybe had to do some tasks that, that maybe you didn't want to? Well, you know, I, I when I left Long Beach in 1968, I went into the service, you know, I was back in the Vietnam War. So you really didn't have much choice 
uh, in 68. And I, I got very lucky to go into the Coast Guard for a couple of years. And through one thing leading to another, I got hooked up at the United States Coast Guard Academy. And I was going to be a hospital corpsman, but I had it set up to go down and stay there and work in the training room and be a trainer because I was a PE major and uh, been a good way to spend it. And then they hired a new coach and I went in and I said, hey, what are you going to do for assistance? And generally they had officers that would do that, but they kind of checked out on him. And he said, hey, I'd love to have you. And and now I never looked back from there. I mean, from then I was coaching in college, went to graduate school at Colorado State and worked with J.J. Uh, Williams and Boyd Grant and then back to the Citadel. And, you know, the, the journey went on. Never once, of course you do things that are, are kind of menial and so forth, but you're a low man on the totem pole, but I never questioned it at all. I was on the road uh, when I was at the Citadel in Florida for like six weeks at a time, just driving place to place to watch kids. I'd meet the team, and uh, but I loved it. You know, I mean, I just, I was in big arenas watching basketball. Uh, what could be better than that? I thought that was the greatest. Coach, how'd you get involved with the Coast Guard? I didn't even realize that about you. Well, it was it was Vietnam or, you know, in fact, I had my 1A and I had my physical notice and nobody was getting out of the draft at that juncture. And I got a note in the mail that I'd signed up when I was a sophomore in, in college uh, about Coast Guard Reserves. A lot of fraternity brothers of mine had been in the reserves and they created a program for college grads uh, that was a two-year program, guys that would fit into specific uh, roles in the service, whether it be a radioman or electronics specialist or something, given the fact that you had a college degree. And they, I got this card in the mail and uh, off I went. Is that scary for you, knowing you know what the potential could have been down the road? Well, uh, yeah, I was scared of Vietnam. You know, it was what a very popular war. And, and in '68, you know, in Southern California, there was just there was a lot of demonstrations and a lot of people doing different things. And so all you read about was what a bad war it was. I have so much more respect for the military now than I did. You know, at the time, it was a uh, it was not a volunteer army; it was a draft army, and the the attitudes were not as positive. Now, it uh, you know went over to Pearl Harbor to watch. Uh, my son's team in Hawaii play in the Pearl Harbor tournament and w- was on the base and just chatted with a lot of the young people that were in the service and such an impressive group of people. I, I have so much respect for them now. Coach, how old were you around that time? Is that like a post-college? Well, I when I was 21, so okay. uh, I was a year early and, uh, you know, I don't know what I, it was really a break for me because I don't know what I would have done. I was immature and uh, would have tried to get a high school teaching job and landed a JB job coaching. And I don't know that I would ever got directed toward college basketball. Long Beach State at the time was what they called college division. Of course, the year I left, Jerry Tarkanian came in, and it was anything but college division with the guys that he brought in. It was definitely college division when I played my senior year. As you can imagine, looking at me, we were playing with guys like me. The next year, uh, the whole climate changed. I remember in the fall, hanging around far away in the service, going out and playing with a couple of those guys. They were nice enough to let me play just because I played the year before. It was just a whole different world. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where I would have ended up. I just I ran into a guy at the Coast Guard Academy that had been at Tennessee uh, that knew all about a graduate assistantship and these different things that I'd never even heard of. And he kind of directed me that direction and, uh, off we went. 
That is that's pretty wild. I because I got to imagine too for for a guy that coached you know college you know, predominantly. I mean that's got to be what ninety eight percent of your career you're coaching college kids, and that's sort of that that like you said it was a draft. It wasn't volunteer at that point for you. Looking at some of these kids that were you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years of age when you had them. Do you ever think back to where you were in your life and how the climate was in society and how different it is now where these guys are thinking about potential million-dollar contracts playing at the NBA? And you know this. I mean, pretty much every guy on a, on a Pac-12 roster thinks he's playing, he's going pro. Oh, there's no question. And it, it's not, a, not only a Pac-12 roster. I, uh, I coached the uh, freshman team at the Coast Guard Academy. It was my primary responsibility and assisted on the varsity and taught six classes a day. And, uh, you know, it, I, I don't know that I'd had any more fun with that group of kids with any other group I've had since then. They were all military kids. were probably at the Coast Guard because they couldn't afford to go to college. Uh, and this was an opportunity for them. My center was 6'3". He was a football tackle. But I'll tell you, these kids were so buttoned up. They were so disciplined. And it, we just had a great time. I was 22, uh, you know, so I wasn't a whole lot older than they were, but I had a lot of enthusiasm, and we were trapping and pressing and doing all this different stuff, and uh, they loved it. We had we had a winning record, first time ever there, and, uh, you know, I, it was just a great start. And every now and again, I hear from one of those kids uh, from the Coast Guard Academy from way back when, and, uh, you know, it's just those things you remember, and uh, it, it was such a great opportunity for, I actually extended my stay in the Coast Guard so I could finish the season, uh, wow. and, you know, which is a little unusual. But uh, it, it was, you know, it's one of those things you look back on and say, what a break. What you thought wasn't a break, having to go into service at that time, turned out to be the biggest break of my career. Yeah. Um, do you keep in touch with a lot of the guys that you coach, just in general? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, I, I've kind of moved on, you know, a lot of the places, uh, you know, the kids have grown in there. I mean, they're, shoot, they're 60 years old, 60 and above, have families of their own. Every now and I get, I get a card or I get a call or I get a text from somebody uh, that maybe had lost track. You know, I coached uh, at the Citadel and University of Florida and back in East there for a while, and you'll hear from guys that, you know, that kind of you lost track of. But I don't have conversations all the time with those guys. Uh, I think, you know, in, in the Stanford for 18 years, those kids are, you know, they're so much smarter than I was to start with. They've gone on to, they didn't need me for anything, you know. I just kind of guided them and tried to help them win a game or two. Coach, when I came, I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in the Northeast, New Jersey, went to school in New York City. And, and you know, I, I grew up in that area and was there my entire life before I took the job at Pac-12 Network. And I've been here now for five years on the West Coast. And I understood, or at least I thought I understood, West Coast way of life and, and certainly was familiar with the schools in our conference, but now really have an intimate knowledge of, of all 12 of the universities that are here. And when I, before I came, people would tell me how different Stanford um, how different Stanford is compared to a lot of the other schools in the country. And then when you get there, you realize that it does have a different vibe. I'm curious because you, you spent so many years there and then you were at, at Cal, you know, across, uh, across the Bay and, and certainly not far from, from Stanford. What made Stanford so unique when you were there? Well, you don't even really realize, I didn't realize it. I knew, I knew Stanford was really good academically, uh, private school. That was about all I knew. I know my high school, uh, one of my high school teammates uh, at the high school I was in, he was an all-CIF player, and he was 
probably a 3-9 grade point, a real good student. He didn't get into Stanford. That was the first blush I'd had that they were pretty selective. But I had no idea until I got there. And then all of a sudden, you know, the reality, it hits you. Uh, and it's done the same. It did the same for Johnny Dawkins. It's doing the same for Jared Hass. You don't really get it till you've been there. Of course, David Shaw gets it because he went to school there and had been an assistant. But it's just really different. And everybody says, oh, gee, you can get this kid or you can get that kid. or No, they don't know what you can and can't do. You have to really buy into what they're doing there. And once you understand it, uh, it's I always said it was really easy to get kids. The hard part was to find those that would qualify. Once you did, you could you had a really high chance of getting them with a few exceptions around the country. It's just a very unique place. And because of the setting and because of their financial ability with all the people who have gone on that success, their endowment uh, and so forth, they're able to do that. How did you change your recruiting philosophy over time there, knowing that there were some of those restrictions about getting guys into school? Well, the thing that, and I, I realize this probably more than anybody now, certainly as I look back, at how fortunate I was to inherit the group of kids that I inherited. Tom Davis had been the coach, and they brought him in from Boston College where he'd done well, and they tried to make the commitment to basketball, which had not had any success for a long time, had not been to a postseason tournament, whether it be NCAA or NIT for 50 years. So they thought, well, okay, we're going to hire this guy, put a little bit of money into it, we're going to do this and this. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. And uh, Tom Davis got frustrated, uh, thought we're never going to win with the kids that allow me to get in. If I can't recruit the kids I want, uh, then I'm going to move on. Well, what he left was a great group of players that happened to just fit exactly the style of play I wanted to play. I mean, Todd Lichty, Eric Revenow, Howard Wright, and the list goes on and on. We had some really good players. And, and really – uh, I couldn't hardly screw it up the way that I like to play. Those kids were receptive. They were hungry and were very, very talented. So uh, once they kind of figured out maybe I could had something that could help them and I looked at their talents, we, we got off to a really fast start. Had I gone in with no talent there, had I gone into a group that, that really, uh, I don't know that I could have turned it around and changed everything because it's very, very difficult. But I was fortunate to have kids that were very hungry to win and were capable of doing that. Coach, was it different recruiting at Stanford as compared to Cal? Because I think people look at Stanford and they think about the academics. And in a lot of ways, I have to imagine it's pretty similar at Cal when, you, when you're at Berkeley. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there, there are differences. You know, Cal's much a much bigger school. It's a public institution. They have a much greater flexibility at who they want to let in or not let in, whereas Stanford really doesn't have that. The, the criteria is pretty well set. It's very high, and they don't bend. Whereas Cal can, you know, they can make different sorts of judgments as to who they are going to let in. Uh, there's a little bit of a saying, I think it's a gross generalization, but, you know, once you get into Stanford, it's manageable, whereas, you know, it's a little bit easier to get into Cal, but it's a little bit harder to stay in. I think there's some truth to that. But there's a variety of other uh, aspects to that. That is, they don't. Stanford doesn't let anybody in that can't do the work, so they're very capable, they're more motivated and driven. 
Whereas in some situations, I used to tell Cal, look, you let these kids in, but you're not supporting them like you need to. Uh, and the kids sometimes felt that they weren't getting what they needed. But uh, two great institutions, you know, you know, arguably the best public institution in the country and arguably the best private institution in yeah. the country, they just happen to be separated by 40 miles. Coach, who's the who's the best player you coached? Oh, I could never make that. I, I could never delineate that. I've had so many good ones, uh, you know, probably starting, well, really starting back with Larry Kristoyak at Montana. Uh, who was MVP of the league for yeah. three years, maybe four. I'm not sure on that, but, you know, coming to Lichty to... By the uh, way, Fred- I think it was it was three years, Coach, and I had asked him if he... if I think he was upset that they didn't give trophies out. He told the story on, on the podcast when he came on with me, and uh, he had said that maybe his wife, maybe one of those trophies is gone because she just kind of tossed it. <laughs> no, <laughs> one of those. It is possible, and I'm sure that's true as he... Uh, garnered trophies as the years went on, but uh, you know, from Lichty to Adam Keefe, you know Howard Wright to Brevin Knight to the Collins twins to Jacobson yeah. Childress. I mean, the list goes on. It would really, you know, I, then you go to Cal with, uh, you know, gosh, Patrick Christopher and Jerome Randall and Theo and uh, Alan Crabb, yeah, and yeah. it's just there's a lot of really good players. To single any one of them out wouldn't be fair. They've all had different sort of things that they brought to the table. When you're going to recruit some of those guys, because like you said, I mean, it's a different set of challenges at Stanford and Cal compared to a lot of the other universities uh, around the country. Uh, David Shaw has, if I'm not mistaken, it's a rule that no, they don't allow kids to make the trip to Stanford without their parents because he thinks that, you know, that, I mean, you, you head to the campus and I think anyone who's been there certainly can understand why. Was there a tactic or a philosophy that you had when you were, when you were making some of those pitches to those, to those student athletes? Well, you, you generally knew, uh, my theory was that if, if they could get in, you were going to get them. And that was the real rub is to know for sure whether they were going to get in. Uh, and it made it very difficult because their admissions uh, procedure takes a long time and, and you don't always get the answers in a timely fashion. And it was very difficult. We kind of went round and round on that a little bit. Uh, you know, the thing, you know, kids would sometimes look at you and they'd say, well, you know this, and they'd say that. And I'd say, at the end of the day, I'd just look at them and say, look, there's one Stanford. And, and they, you know, they want to have a, a comeback, but they knew that was true. And essentially, we never lost a parent. I mean, I, it, it, the parents were the easy sell. We never lost a parent. The worst thing that would happen sometimes is they would say, "Well, we've got these five schools, and they're all really good schools." And they were. I mean, it might be a, you know, it might be a Vanderbilt, it might be a North Carolina, it might be a Northwestern, or something like that. They were all real good opportunities for the kids, and, and they were good opportunities. But I would say, look, there's just one Stanford. Um, you know, one of the things that we fought early on, and they're, they're back into that a little bit, which is really unfortunate for uh, Coach Haas, uh, you know, the interest is different at Stanford. Their people don't live and die with athletics like they might in the Midwest or some other places. I remember Alan Henderson, for example, came on a campus visit. I think we had Fred Hoiberg. I think we had Eric Meek who went to Duke. We had five really good players on a visit. And Alan Henderson, whose dad was a doctor in the Indianapolis area there, after we'd taken him, I mean, we had introduced him to Condoleezza Rice. We, I mean, we mm-hmm. pulled out all the stops, Gene Washington, all the people that we could bring in to impress upon him. He, he looked and he said to me very innocently, 
see, basketball's really not very important here, is it? And I kind of how do you answer the question? Because you know he was right, based on what he was used to. In other words, when he walked on a campus as a high school recruit, they had people lining the you know streets, everybody looking at him. Oh gosh, that's Allen in. Everybody knew who he was. And at Stanford, it just wasn't that way. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody differentiated him from anybody else. He's just another guy that maybe was lucky to get a chance to go to Stanford. So, you know, we turned that around to where people were really interested in the program, but uh, it's a big part of recruiting. Kids sense and they feel that. Uh, and so it it, uh, it hurts in your recruiting when people aren't quite as excited because kids are used to it. They're used to being catered to. Coach, how did you change that around? Because I think you hit the nail on the head where the last few years, at least at Stanford, there's been you know a certain level of interest and people will cite what was happening when you were there and sort of the buzz and what it was like to, you know, to, to see the arena packed and, and look around and, and people were talking about the basketball team. And I, I get it. A lot of it comes to wins, right? I mean, it's success. If you guys are winning, people are, are going to want to see that team. But there's got to be something more to it, right? I mean, besides just winning, is it as simple as that? Well, it, it's not as simple as that. There was a lot of factors involved, but I think that um, one of the things that we got in, involved in our program were the students. They, okay, football wasn't great when we were there. You know, it was good some and not good some other times. It was kind of moving along around 500, and then you'd have a seven and four, and you know, so. Uh, it, at the end of the day, of all the schools in the league, everybody pretty much wants to be a football school other than really Arizona and UCLA, the two basketball schools. Now, that's not to say everybody doesn't want to be good in both, but if they had a druthers, that's where the druthers would be. And now Stanford's gotten very good in football, so people sort of focus on that a little bit more. Uh, our kids did a great job of getting out, living in different places on campus, uh, and, and developing a lot of friends. Pete Sauer was a great example of that. He hung out probably more with the football guys than he did with the basketball guys. And so they developed a lot of friends on campus, and they these kids would all come out and support him. The other thing, kind of ironically, is, you know, Jamie Zaninovich, who's now associate commissioner yeah. in the in the Pac-12, he was my operations guy. And Jamie, very bright guy, very motivated, loved sports, loved basketball. Uh, he did a great job of creating this group of uh, students that were advocates for our basketball program that went out and hustled kids on campus. And so they kind of got together. And all of a sudden, the student section was the sixth man. You know, they'd stand, and it, they'd have all these clever things that they would do. Uh, and then, of course, the season ticket people liked that. There was enthusiasm. There was noise. There was energy in the arena. And then, of course, it didn't help that we were good because we won, and we you know we had some really good players. And... And we really had a lot of kids who played hard. They, you know, we weren't always the most talented team for sure, but we had guys that would bust it, you know, the Matt Lodics of the world that get Madsen that would just, oh, yeah. you know, big, strong, raw bone kids that give you what they had. Coach, from a, a philosophical standpoint, as a head coach, I, I'm curious because I know there's different ways, you know, different ways to skin a cat. Um, and I, I'm going to ask you about a scenario that I just experienced a couple weeks ago. I was down in Atlanta for the Peach Bowl, and Chris Peterson, who's the head coach at Washington, is down there with his team. And then, of course, there's Nick Saban at Alabama. And I was doing media with a lot of the different radio stations. And at one point, there was this dinner that was taking place where we got there, and I was interviewing John Ross, who, who's now going to be, you know, an NFL wide receiver, and 
Chris made sure his team, it was the College Football Hall of Fame, he made sure his team experienced that, right? They got a private tour, they go to the auditorium, they watch a, a short little film, and then they go to the banquet and they eat dinner. Alabama shows up in their bus right before the banquet starts, and they just literally beeline it to have dinner. And a few of the media said, well, that's because Nick Saban is is all business, and their job is to win the football game. And Chris Peterson would tell you, no, I'm not just a football coach. I, I need to make sure that these guys are experiencing life. And he'd get speakers to come in and, and that sort of thing. How important is it from a student-athlete perspective when you were a head coach to make sure it wasn't just about basketball and what was happening on the floor and practice? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Obviously, Alabama's about as close to a, you know, pro, NFL pro team, yeah. <laughs> pro team as, as you're going to find. And you know, uh, whether you believe want to believe it or not, or like it or not, that's just the way it is. That's where it's headed. There's a bottom line mentality. We don't care what, how. We just want to win. Uh, but at Stanford, for example, you don't have really a choice because. You know, I would walk into the locker room at any given time prior to a game or NIT or wherever we were, NCAA, and the kids would be on the board solving a problem set. And the, during the NCAA tournament, for example, it was always during finals. And you didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, we're no one of our finals. We're going to, you know, we got, we got NCAA to play. That just wasn't the way it was. We went back and we played uh, George Washington, I as I recall, and it went down to play the University of Virginia. And one of the players' dads was in the FBI. So we went to the the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. We went to the Capitol building. The difference is that the kids I've had, and, and really at Cal and at Stanford for sure, they were engaged. They were interested. They had things to ask, things to see, and it worked really well for them as a part of that. The really good programs, I think, if you can do it, do things the right way from the standpoint of how they dress, uh, where they go, how they conduct themselves. That's a big part of the program. Some coaches say, I I don't care about that. Let's be ready to play. Uh, We need to win games, and that's true. But I think one leads itself to another. If you're real disciplined and the kids really buy into the team concept and they see that everybody's doing things the same way, it's going to pay dividends for you on the court. Coach, did you have a dress code for your guys? You know, we did. Uh, we certainly did at Stanford. We started off, well, I, we did at Montana as well. Uh, that was sort of before the sweats era. Uh, and then we kept it up. We came to Stanford and you know, what I'd said to them was, you need to look good. That was the first thing I told them. When we travel, we need to look good. And then what I found out was that one young man's version of what looks good and another's are different. You know, so I said, well, this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to be more specific. So it was collared shirt, you know, pair of slacks, uh, big boy shoes, you know, so forth. And slowly but surely, the uh, kids kind of liked it. And uh, before we got done, we were wearing ties on the road, and kids were taking some pride in dressing up and the way they look. And they liked walking through airports and having people say, "Wow, those guys, who's that?" Uh, and they sort of pride in that. Uh, and I, that it's just that's gone. You, you don't ever see that anymore. You just see the team sweats. You know, whether it be with the women or whether it be with the guys. You go to an airport, you see a group of kids are always wearing sweats. 
And so I don't know. When I got to Cal, we sort of loosened it up a little bit. We tried the, the dress thing. But uh, it's just another thing that sometimes you have to fight. And really what you have to do is fight the battles that are the most important. Uh, and that just wasn't one of them. Coach, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you just told me a few minutes ago about you know having guys solving problems on the whiteboard during the NCAA tournament, right? Because it's finals time. You're competitive. I've seen you. I've covered games that you've had. I can see you on the sidelines. You're a competitive guy. I don't think you can achieve the things that you've achieved without being competitive, especially in sport. I, I don't want to say that that's a frustrating thing, but like, how do you describe and balance as a head coach seeing your guys maybe worrying about a final, but at the same time, it's the NCAA tournament, right? I mean, how do you... I, I, you're not frustrated by that, but like you can't, are you, I, I don't even like you describe it for me. Cause you're the one experiencing it. Like in my head, I'm trying to picture like what it would be like if I was a head coach of a team and it's the NCAA tournament and my guys are, you know, thinking about finals and solving problems on the board and maybe not thinking about the opponent. I don't even know how I would feel about it. Well, initially it was just, it was, it was something I'd never experienced before. Uh, when I got to Stanford, for example, uh, you know, all of a sudden you are thinking, oh, we can't do that. You can't, you know, you got to do this. You got to, you got to be here. You got to be there. You got to start concentrating, all that type of thing. But what I discovered, the difference at Stanford, there's a lot of smart kids around in, in the country going to college, playing basketball, football, everything else. The, the thing that the Stanford kids could do that, that a lot of kids couldn't is they could do one, two, three things really, really well. So they were capable of doing a good job in the classroom. I had several kids that were really good with musical instruments uh, or some other aspect, and then they could play basketball. They could do more than one thing really well. And over the time, I started to trust that instinct. And I realized that, you know, we had rules. You know, we had bed checked. We were very, you've got to be in your room at such and such a time. I don't think they all went to sleep, but they were in their rooms when they should have been. Uh, and, you know, we kept eye on them, but they got done what they needed to get done. I'll never forget the first time we went on an airplane. You know, most kids now would put on their headphones, fall asleep. You know, you see their head bobbing with whatever they're listening to music. And I had several kids that had a book open, and I asked, I asked one of the players about it one time. I said, what, how can you? And they said, Coach, this is time that I can get a chapter done. I can put a chapter behind me, maybe two. If I don't do it now, I'm going to have to do it later. And they, their management of time was so much better. And uh, I just I, I just learned that to trust them. And when it came time, they had the ability to concentrate on what they needed to concentrate on. I think now, you mentioned it earlier, so many kids are less interested in the a- academics than they probably should be. And there's probably a lot of schools that accommodate kids more than they ever have before uh, in terms of making sure that they are stay eligible and so forth. Uh, so they don't, as you say, they all think they're going to go play in the NBA anyway, so their priority is basketball. But how you prepare yourself is a big part of college and preparing for life. Coach, um, I know you touched on on a little bit of the recruiting. I'm curious, every time I get a head coach that's on and it's any sport, um, I always ask for a recruiting story. Anything over your time that, that stands out, you know, on the road or scouting someone or making a pitch that's just really memorable just because it's a little different? 
No, I, you know, we one of the things that happened when we first started this thing, of course, you know, is uh, at Sanford, for example, we were had success, but, you know, we weren't beating UCLA, Arizona, uh, North Carolina, Duke on kits, you know. And I used to tell my assistants, I said, guys, at some point we're going to have to beat them on kids because we just can't keep in, keep taking guys and uh, beat Menlo College and expect to win. In fact, when I first got the job at Stanford, I asked the kids, how many of you were recruited by, you know, name those five schools, for example, not a single hand went up. And I said, well, okay, so what what do we need to do here? We're not losing. We're not just going to go in and concede to those people. The only thing that I know to do is to work harder than they are, you know, so we're going to have a better weight program. We're going to spend more time. We're going to do all these things. And as I mentioned, we had a great group, and they bought in, and that was part of what did. But Adam Keefe was the first kid that I remember that we recruited that had an opportunity to go to, say, UCLA. I think he visited Duke and North Carolina, and we were the fourth, and he chose Stanford. And that was the first time we actually broke through and had beaten one of those schools on a kid. And so, you know, that that's – when that happens, that's pretty important. I remember going over to Madsen's house, for example, and uh, he had a brother-in-law, I think, that was in a medical school at UCLA, and, of course, he was Mormon, so BYU was a factor, and we sat there and we chatted and so forth, and then he just kind of looked at me, and he says, Coach, I'm going to go to Stanford, you know, and my jaw kind of dropped, and his parents laughed at me, and, uh, you know, so there's a lot of stories like that where you – you really work and you're not sure if you're going to get them and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden they say they're coming. We got lucky with Brevin Knight, for example, Mike, where there was, we had, I think five point guards in the East coast that we thought were really high quality guards. And one by one, one went to Virginia, one went to North Carolina, one went to Villanova and really Brevin was the last one. And, and, it came down to we were the best opportunity for him, and boy, was that a break for Stanford for us because uh, he just turned us back around again and got us back up on top. Do, do you remember getting the the yes from him and what the, what your thought was when he said, "Hey, I'm hey, coach, I'm I'm coming to the farm." Well, he, you know, here's the kid. He's five eight, probably 140 pounds, dripping wet. Now he was, you know, he wasn't dominant, but uh, you know, his dad Melvin had played at Seton Hall. His mom was very, very academically oriented. And, uh, you know, she was a major part of it in this whole thing, in the whole process. And they had been out. Melvin, his dad, play, had played out here. And so we were very fortunate to, to have that happen. Uh, we had some times when we had to go to prep schools to find players that, because we just didn't have a player to fill a position. We were, we were guard short. I told my guys one time, I said, guys, we got to have a guard. I, I, we don't have three guards. So we went back and I said, find the best guard you can find in prep school and that can get in here. You know, and it wasn't a question of, uh, you know, finding a guy that was real, oh boy, he's really good. He's going to be, we had to find a guy to fill a spot where we weren't going to have Bill fill lineup. So there was some of that in the, in the process. Coach, I, I described you as competitive, right? And you had the opportunity to go to the NBA from Stanford and, and you end up obviously with the Warriors Take me through that that process, because I got to think after being uh, 18 years at Stanford, the idea of leaving there has got to be in, in some ways daunting and scary. But at the same time, knowing that there's a challenge that's awaiting you, that's the NBA. I, I mean, that's also that exciting appeal to it as well. 
Well, I'd been in, you know, I'd been a head coach at that point for 26 years in college. I was 57 years old, and I coached the world championship team with Greg Popovich and George Carl, and uh, you know, had experienced that a little bit. In fact, I asked Pop. I said, you know, what do you, you think I could coach in the league? Oh, he says you'd be a great, you know. And I coached the 22 and under team with guys who were all going to be pros, and the 19 and under team with guys Stephen Marbury and Actually, Sharif Abdul-Rahim was on that team. So, uh, you know, I, I just, if you were going to do it, it, now is the time to do it. And we we were had done very, very well at Stanford, and there was no place else to go, really. You weren't going to leave Stanford to take another college job. So there was only one, one other thing to do, and that was the NBA. You know, in retrospect, it wasn't probably the right thing to do, either for Chris Mullen or for myself. If you look at Steve Kerr, for example, uh, who's just done a marvelous job and is a terrific human being, uh, you know, he played in the league for 15 years. He was a general manager in the league. He was uh, he did analysis work for TNT. So the background of having knowing all of the nuances of the NBA were, are clearly there for him. For me, there was none. I had no idea about it's a di- it's a different game their routine is different their daily schedule is different and uh and frankly there was a lot of things that I just didn't know and so uh it you know I walked ah, that was a lo- it can be the loneliest position in the world when you don't win in that league I'll tell you what it's it's uh it's tough you don't have a whole lot of time to coach them up you've got to have talent that are capable in and develop a scheme that's going to work for you and they've got to buy in you've got to You've got to get your best player on your side so that you can control the locker room. Uh, it's a difficult situation. I, I feel like Coach Stroviak said basically the same exact thing when he was on on the show uh, a couple weeks ago. Is there, in your mind, what's sort of the difference in mentality from a pro player versus a college player? Well, you know, I don't want. There's a sense of entitlement in the NBA. I mean, they uh, they make a lot of money, and you don't have really a lot of control over what happens. You know, again, I could use the Warriors as the best example because they have tremendous character from the you know from the top down. And a guy like Bob Myers and, and Steve Kerr, and then you have your best players in Stephon, you know, Curry. Uh, in, in Draymond, in uh, you know, right on down the line, Clay Thompson, they're all high character guys. And when Curry decides that he's going to listen and he's going to be a good citizen and the type of guy he is, then everybody else kind of falls in line. Uh, you know, Durant's the same way. So if you don't have that, if you don't have that at the top, it's just an impossible situation because the locker room becomes very difficult and it's uh I'd go to practice and guys sort of didn't want to practice and so they'd go to the trainer with what they would describe as, you know, sort of this or sort of that and the trainer wasn't gonna take them on and you just wouldn't have guys for practice. And so it, it made it it made it pretty difficult. And players will watch you to see how you're gonna handle it. I had really good assistants, uh Terry Stotts, Keith Smart, very veteran guys that really helped me a lot. But if you don't have talent in that league you are not going to win it's as simple as that and 
no matter what you do or how much you coach or what you try to put in, it's just not going to work. So it was a great experience for me. I was really glad I did it. I wish I could have done a better job. I think about the time I started to figure it out, you know, I got let go. But, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And uh, it was the right move at the time, I think. Coach, do you think the transition was what it was because it was Stanford? I mean, you spent some time telling me. I, the reality is the stories that you were telling about the kids that you had at Stanford, that's just not how a lot of programs operate. Those are not the type of kids that a lot of the other programs get. Do you think that maybe played a factor in in sort of what you were used to all those years and then going to the NBA where where there was that mentality that just was vastly different? Oh, I don't think there's any question. I, mean, I think that's very accurate in that uh, let's say that the game of basketball is an inner city game, which it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's pretty much kids, uh, and a lot of kids didn't finish school, and it, it's a different sort of a deal. Well, here I am for 18 years in one place uh, where every kid is so very capable. They got into the school because of their ability to achieve at a very high level, whether it be academics, athletics, or socially. Uh, and once they're convinced that, you know, you're telling them the right thing to do, they'll do everything to do in their power to do it. And so you're going to a situation where you didn't really deal with a single guy that might be more dominant as a rule in the NBA. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Monte Ellis, who's a very good player, we take him out of high school, you know, and he comes into the program. We had several foreign kids uh, Skittish Vili and Chabarkaba and Michael Pietras, you know, most of them didn't really understand English. We'd come out of huddles and they would, I, I'd explain exactly what we were going to do. And you can see two or three of them look at the other guys and what did he just say? You know, and so your execution was, uh, it wasn't very good. And one of the things that probably I feel like I did best is prepare. And I have a pretty good understanding of how the game works. And so you can put a, you can really teach kids how to make something work if, if they will listen and, and execute it. And that really just wasn't happening. So I think there's no question that it was pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum really from where I came from. Coach, you used the word lonely to describe um, at least part of the stay tenure when you were in the NBA. What's, at what point did you start missing college coaching? when you were there? Uh, well, I, I, what I realized was, you know, it, it's a great way of life if your lifestyle is oriented that way. I mean, you don't really have to spend a lot of time. You need to look at a lot of tape. But you're on an airplane sitting in a first-class seat eating food where you can watch tape on your computer. Your practices are always in the morning. You're generally done at 12, 1 o'clock in the, morning, in the afternoon. And you can go back and look at tape, but there's a lot of free time. Uh, a lot of the guys like to go out at night and, you know, have a nice dinner, hang out a little bit. That just wasn't me. Uh, and so, you know, when you lose, it was kind of ironic. You'd walk from your office, you know, down the hall. You'd see people ducking back in their offices because they, you know, didn't want uh, to see you necessarily. And, uh, it's not where everybody supports you. I, I think I, I might have said to somebody, I said, you know, they ought to take everybody that's in this franchise from trainer to strength coach to public relations to, you know, everybody and tie them to my success. So there's no way that they better stick in and, and help 
or, you know, they could be in trouble too because the one guy that's in trouble is the head coach. He's the guy that's going to go. He's the first to go. And most of the people in the NBA know that. They pretty much start uh, preparing themselves for their next job if they feel like it's not going to work with the guy that's in, in charge. Coach, before I let you get going here, I, I, and obviously I mentioned the fact that you've been working with us at Pac-12 Network and, and you're doing a whole lot of other things. Uh, do you still spend time at all um, college gym, or excuse me, high school gyms and, and seeing younger talent guys that haven't gone and have maybe haven't decided where they're going to go and play their college ball? Is that still part of, I don't no, know, do you I, find I, yourself? I just stay away from that a little bit because I don't want to be in a position where a coach – or a parent comes up and says, you know, hey, I'm being recruited by so-and-so and so-and-so. What shall I do? Where should I go? And I don't want to be in a position to, to make that decision or be held to that. Uh, I, You know, for me, it always was about, you know, there were three things I thought that needed to be done in recruiting situation. I think, and, and this is antiquated, and this is where the old school thing there's three things. One is you should be interested in the education that you're going to get or have the opportunity to get. Two, you know, who are you going to play for basketball-wise? Does it fit your style? And is it something you feel like the group of kids or, or kids are the type of people you like to be around? And three, I think it's a social aspect because you have to be happy. You have to have, be around kids that are you have things in common with uh, and a whole general student body. And you just don't see that happening anymore. You, you just It's pretty much a basketball decision. And I, I tell kids, I said, you know, it's not going to go right for you. It's not going to work out totally like you want it to be. But if two of the three things are working for you, then you're going to stay until you work the one thing out. But if only one thing's, if you're going there for one reason and one reason only, and that thing falls apart, you're out of here. That's where you're seeing all this transfer stuff going on. Yeah. Doesn't work right away. Instant gratification. I'm off to the next place. And I, I still believe that the opportunity to get a quality education is a big part of, of why kids should make that decision. Now, I know that the very best players are going to maybe get into the NBA and they're maybe going to make a lot of money. But that group of people, the number of those is not very big, not nearly as big as everybody thinks it is. It's very difficult to make it in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Coach Tad Boyle, I had asked him if he was the, uh, you know, the the ultimate had ultimate and final say on any decision that happened with college basketball. What, what's that one change that he would make? I'm not going to tell you what he said, but I'm curious because now you're not coaching anymore. So if you're, you're one step removed, if you had to make a change in the college game, what would it be? Well, I, I don't think there's any question. My guess is that, that Ted would say that the kids had to stay like the baseball rule, had to stay in school for years. Uh, yeah, he's anti be, the transfer rule. That grad transfer rule, he is not a fan of. No, that for sure. That that's a that's a sham. And and, and even the, the educated <laughs> people, like the college presidents, you know, said, "Well, how can we penalize kids when they've done what we've asked them to do, and that's get their degree?" And so there's some truth to that, but it makes it makes coaches dishonest because they're recruiting kids off other people's campuses. Uh, you put three years into developing the kid, four years into developing the kid, and all of a sudden he leaves to go to something that looks bigger and brighter for him. But, you know, back way back when you started before all the kids were going, were going to the pros after one year or two years at the most, you saw kids develop in college and you saw these rivalries. What if all these freshmen we had in the Pac-12 in the last three or four years 
stayed for two or three or four years and were competing wow. against one another, it would make the college game so much better. It would allow these kids to mature. It would help the NBA because the NBA would now know, they'd see what they were getting, and their investment in these kids would be that much better for them. And it would be healthier for everybody, including the kids, and give them a chance to mature and grow up a little bit. That's never going to happen, but if, if, if there was one thing that I think would help everybody, uh, that would be it. It won't happen because the Players Association in the NBA will never agree to it. Yeah, yeah. Coach, um, outstanding. I, I can't thank you enough. It was great hearing some of those stories and, and your take on on sort of the uh, the success that you had at Stanford and obviously your, your path. So once again, thank you so much for coming on with us. All right, my, my, my pleasure. Can't thank Coach enough for stopping by uh, and, and sharing his story. And can't thank you guys enough for living, listening to this podcast. Uh, I know there are plenty of options that are out there. Actually, the last couple of days, I've been looking for some new podcasts to listen to. And, and in the heavy rotation for me, uh, the Living the Dream podcast that Beto Duran does, I think is is awesome. I think it's one of the best ones that are out there. Pretty similar to what, what I've been doing. He's been doing it longer than I have, but he does a great job with his guest, uh, Yogi Roth, Life Without Limits. Uh, just very different than pretty much every show that you're going to listen to that you can go and find. Yogi does an awesome job. Adam Thank you. was one of our producers, actually, at uh, Pac-12 Network. If you're a basketball fan, the Great Point Podcast, he does an awesome job as well. But I know that there are a lot of options that are out there. I've been looking for some other shows to listen to, and and just I, I can't get over how many different shows are available to everyone. So the fact that you guys are are listening to this one, I can't thank you enough for doing that. Um, if you are so inclined, just continue, obviously, to just subscribe to the show, uh, rate it, review it on iTunes, and spread it on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Mike Under score yam same username on instagram and of course the facebook page is mike yam and getting plenty of feedback from you guys and uh once again really really appreciate you guys spreading the word it's a one-man show so kind of handling business on my own just booking the guest and and editing it and producing the whole thing um so it's it's a labor of love but it's been a blast doing it and and obviously uh, knowing that you guys are listening to it and the numbers continue to grow uh, i can't thank you guys enough for that so continue to spread the word um and be a part of this community and uh really appreciate you guys taking the time it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.